Hello, everyone. Welcome. I'm Molly Rowan Leach, and I am the media liaison and support and executive producer of Restorative Justice on the Rise, which is a public podcast and resource hub. That's www.restorativejusticeontherise.org. We're here at the National Association for Community and Restorative Justice Conference. And today's keynote session this morning with Adam Foss, entitled The New Prosecution Perspective, Ending the School-to-Prison Pipeline, was an extraordinary experience and to a packed ballroom. In this short-form interview, I'm really honored to introduce to you Senator Pete Lee of Colorado in conversation briefly with Adam reflecting on his keynote today. Thank you everyone and please support the National Association by visiting their website at www.nacrj.org. Enjoy this conversation between Adam and Senator Lee. So Adam, first, thanks very much for coming to Colorado to talk to the National Association of Community Restorative Justice. Uh, the theme of this conference has been um, expanding restorative justice, widening the circle, and elevating justice. Um, how does the work that you do fit into that theme? Sure. Uh, the work that I do at the organization that I run called Prosecutor Impact um, is all about providing prosecutors tools that they can rely, rely upon to achieve the goals that they want, which is safety and accountability and justice. Um, that are more inclined to get to those goals other than incarceration. And so for me, the most important tool, the one that I try to imbue into all of the training is, is restorative justice because during my experience as a prosecutor, it was the tool that I found uh, was most commensurate with getting to those goals of safety and accountability. The challenge that some of us face who are trying to elevate justice and widen the circle is resistance by prosecutors. From your perspective as a prosecutor, how do advocates from the outside overcome the resistance to change? Yeah, so I think that there's some credible messengering that needs to ha happen. Um, for me, when I first heard of restorative justice, uh, and even when I first sort of experienced it, I had this thing in mind. It was like tambourines and sage and all these things. And as a law enforcement person from Boston, that just wasn't something that people were equipped to even think about. So uh, understanding about developing language and, and being able to relay that message to those folks, trying to get to that core value about safety and accountability um, would be the way for me. Uh, and doing as much as I could to um, think about the things that they care about the most, which again are like the accountability word and safety word. And talking about how restorative justice uh, is survivor-centered, uh, does things for survivors that none of us can claim to do in the criminal justice system, um, actually yields accountability from people and actually uh, promotes people's healing, which uh, repairs harm. When you can develop the language and lexicon to advocate for it in that way, I think you'll see a lot less resistance. Well, that really makes sense to talk with them in the language and to deal with their perspective on it. Uh, the other challenge that we have with prosecutors is uh, that they are often willing to embrace restorative justice for shoplifting and, you know, low-level offenses, but they're uh, reticent to utilize it for high-level offenses, particularly um, offenses involving personal harm. Uh, any thoughts on how we could make 
restorative justice more of an appealing option to prosecutors where there are cases of serious injury? I think that two things. One is uh, as progressive prosecution or, or criminal justice reform is sort of swept across this landscape, people have sort of used up all of the easy, low-hanging fruit stuff. And, and they're sort of like at this impasse where um, they cannot continue to claim to be progressive or that they're reforming or changing anything because they're now at this place, they're at this crossroads where the question is, what do you do with violent crime? And of all of the things that come through the criminal justice system, the thing that we fail at the most is repairing harm as a result of violent crime, both on the offending side, but also on the survivor side. And so getting survivors uh, to be the forward-facing um, advocate of restorative justice because of what it does for them. Uh, and I'm, I'm not saying this as like opinion or, or, or hypothetical. I've seen that the most powerful thing for people is seeing survivors say that this is what we want. Um, and so looking at um, the research for the, of the Alliance for Safety and Justice, which sort of showed us that like 70% of survivors of crime, of, of physical harm, uh, want prosecutors to do something other than incarcerate. And so it provides an opportunity and it provides, um, again, like a question for prosecutors. It's like if survivors are telling us this, then what, what are we doing? I think what uh, has been sort of co-opted by, uh, or, or at least believed by the law enforcement community is that restorative justice is somehow a pass for offenders, that it's about the offenders and it's about making, you know, hippy-dippy stuff with offenders, um, reclaiming that it's about survivors. So enlist survivors as advocates who have participated in restorative justice yes. and have them describe the impact that it's had on them. Yes, and not just them, but there are lots of prosecutors in California and in Massachusetts, uh, in Texas, and even in Florida that have gone inside and seen restorative justice with survivors and um, people who have committed high-level offenses. And those folks... Uh, obviously would be credible messengers saying, I've, I've seen this with my own eyes. I'm trying it out now. You can too. It's a lot of the reticence of more conservative folks is just fear. It's just fear. They can't look at the system and say, we're doing a good job. Right. Uh, but they're afraid of what happens if I let go of this and I go to something else. So seeing other people and hearing other people have done it is really helpful. So another area that we're exploring, and I'd be interested in your perspective on it, is uh, utilization of restorative practices, community reintegration circles for people that are in community corrections, getting ready to transition back into the community. We in Colorado, and I suspect you in Massachusetts, have uh, challenges with recidivism, yes. that people come out of prison, go back to prison uh, very rapidly within mm -hmm. a three-year period. Uh, do you see a uh, benefit to using community reintegration processes uh, to help transition people back into the community. Absolutely, and it, it and the reason is uh, that I feel that way is everything about sort of the theory uh, behind restorative justice is exactly what you're talking about. When there's a person who is returning to a community, typically they're returning to a community that they've harmed, and if they have not had the opportunity to um, talk about that harm, understand that harm, and also have the community be accountable for its failings in this person's life, which happened from the time they were a child until the time they committed their offense, then you're just you're just doing what the rest of the criminal justice system does. We, we lock you up, we dehumanize you, we harm you, and we send you back in the community without any support or resource. Um, all of the statistics show that one of the one of the things that makes people 
the most successful is connection to community. Right. And so right. if you can use uh, restorative practices to make that connection uh, deeper and and, um, and wider, uh, I, I would have to imagine that you'd see a lot more success when people come home. So what are the themes that you uh, talked about in your discussion at the plenary session today was uh, adverse childhood experiences uh, that impacts kids at home and how that puts them on a trajectory to get into the criminal justice system. Do you see any applications for restorative justice at the early end of the, uh, or the early part of the uh, of uh, the cycle, so that we can avoid having kids go into the system? Yeah. Uh the one thing that I love about restorative justice is, is how developmentally appropriate it is for young people, people whose brains are still developing and who don't respond well to getting yelled at or physically punished. Most or of us don't. Isolate. Right, right. <laughs> um, particularly those of us who have been traumatized, we've been abandoned, we've been taken out of our homes, we, our life is in constant upheaval. Uh, having the ability to sit down and, and talk, just talk about that. Um, is restorative to, to repairing that harm. And it allows the other person to understand, I'm not uh, acting up in class because I don't like you or because I'm a bad student. I'm acting up in class because I haven't eaten anything. Um, allowing for those conversations and those opportunities to happen um, are exactly what needs to happen in those situations because you, you have a person who is uh, behaving in a way because of their trauma and because of the hormones that are, that are going on in their body, not because of any individual bad decision making. And so using restorative process in school discipline, um, and I'm talking about preschool and elementary school, or t uh, training parents how to have restorative conversations as opposed to hitting their children or isolating their children further, talking to police officers about if you need to engage with a young person on the street, think about these principles when you're doing that so we don't have a, such an es a situation escalate where there's a homicide. So training... Uh, at all levels of people who interact with kids to yes. talk in a manner that is more restorative. So let's talk a little more about the schools because, uh, you know, the term school to prison pipeline is is uh, used pretty uh, consistently to mm -hmm. describe what's going on as mm -hmm. kids get suspended and expelled from schools. How do we get schools to move more into a uh, restorative process and circling up to address uh, misconduct by kids in schools, rather than sending them to the to the uh, law enforcement system. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, I think one thing is we got to start before teachers are in classrooms. Um, there's so much certification and accreditation that goes on, and um, you know I don't I don't know what the laws are in Colorado, but in Massachusetts you have to have like a master's degree to teach in an elementary school classroom, um, and they'll teach you all the things about how to be a great Academician. Yeah. Right. Uh, but th they don't ever teach you anything about trauma. They don't ever teach you anything about poverty, about the race history in the United States of America and structures and body language, nothing. We don't learn anything. Same is true of prosecutors and, and police officers. And so one is just let's put that, let's put all of these concepts into the training and education of our teachers. Then it's just how people follow their incentives. And so how do you work with school administrations and school boards to make evaluations and feedback and performance um, incentives revolve around, are you, are you using restorative practice? You have to collect data, you have to hold people accountable for that. But what you'll find in the data is not just about like policing people and, and, and harming them if they don't come correct, but you'll find that like your job performance is better. 
the other kids in the classroom are doing better. Your, your test scores are better. Your graduation rates are better. We can reward you for that, not because you're putting other people in jeopardy by not suspending or expelling a kid, but because you've learned these things. You have, you've gained the respect and the trust of these children, and they'll, they'll do better. Um, and it's really sad to me to hear that schools are reticent to make time, put in the effort, put in the resources to do it, because there are so many uh, examples of how schools have turned around just by going through a more restorative model. So your um, theme that you pursue, as I understand professionally, is a new perspective for prosecutors. Can you uh, talk to us about that in terms of how that incorporates restorative justice and restorative practices? Sure. Um, the idea that mass incarceration is driven solely by policies and legislative le le bad legislation and elected officials, you know, DAs imposing their will is, is silly. It, that means you don't know anything about the functioning of a government agency. Uh, mass incarceration to me is equally as driven by very young, scared prosecutors who are making decisions based on no life experience whatsoever except their own. Um, and in doing that, we've deprived prosecutors, particularly in this generation, of tools to get to the to get to get the outcomes we want. We want people to be safe. Right. We want people right. to be, be held accountable and to be accountable to repair harm. Everybody can agree on that. The tools that we've historically given prosecutors to get to those objectives and the things that we incentivize uh, don't work. Prison doesn't work to get to those objectives. The only tool you have is a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. And the fact that I was evaluated not on uh, repairing harm and, and making survivors feel good after they've been through the system, the fact that I was evaluated on taking cases to trial and winning them, it, that's, it's, it's like a fraud. It's like nothing about me being a good trialer had anything to do with achieving these goals. Or enhanced prison sentences. Exactly. Or like, pleading to felonies as opposed to misdemeanors. Yes. Is that part of the evaluation process yeah. of, of prosecutors? Yeah. And then it's like, do people like you? Or is your, are your files organized? Um, you know, uh, we, we have all of these weird performance metrics. One thing we never ask is like, how did the victim feel? We never get feedback from the users of the system, from right. the offender side or from the survivor side. And so what uh, we're trying to do is give prosecutors those tools, give them the language and the understanding, the lexicon of all the confluence of these things, and start helping offices measure performance based on those things, not on these historic, arcane, inefficient, ineffective things. The outcomes that we really want, yes, which is more satisfied victims, more pro-social functioning defendants and reduced recidivism. Correct. Because when you get those things, when you get, uh, when you when you treat people with procedural justice and you treat them like a human being, you treat them with dignity, all of the things that are sort of like baked into the to the culture of restorative justice, that person will look at the system differently. And that person might right. participate in society, society differently. And most importantly, we don't talk about this enough, is that um, victims don't engage with the criminal justice system because they're terrified of what might happen to them not from like snitching and somebody's going to come and shoot me they're worried about their loved one being locked up they're worried about their community their neighbor getting locked up they're wor worried about that stranger a young black person who carjacked them getting locked up for the rest of their life and as a result we're actually like a very unsafe place because people are hesitant to pick up the phone when you treat people well and when you ask them how they're doing you respond to their suggestions they'll be more apt to engage in the system but right now, we're, we're missing 70% of the victims. 70% of people who either won't pick up the phone in the first place 
or we'll pick up the phone and then they'll disappear by the time the arraignment or grand jury comes. We're not serving them. We need to get them back. So the community disengages from a system that they feel is oppressive and not serving their needs, and therefore that's creating a lack of community safety. Correct. So we need to re-engage communities by giving them things in the system that they really want. Correct. Which is, what do victims look for? Voice. Voice. Answers to questions. Answers to questions. Um, the ability to have something that feels like power uh, in, the, in the outcome of the case. Participation. Participation. Yeah. Yep. Um, they want to be asked how they feel. Yeah. Um, they want services that they don't have to cha- They don't have to call 19 numbers for. Um, and most of the time, they just want their stuff back and they want to be left alone. Uh, we don't do any of those things. We, yeah. we call them. We threaten to arrest them if they don't cooperate with us. We supplant our ideas of safety and justice for theirs. Um, right. And again, when you ask them, they don't, they don't say prison and police. They say housing, you know, education, employment. Um, and so the thing that victims most say to me um, when I ask them, you know, what can we do better as being prosecutors the number one answer is treatment with dignity, and the number two answer is treat, uh, see me as a human being. Seems pretty basic. Pretty basic, but those are skills that we have to teach people, particularly right. like right. highly educated people of privilege who think that they just do they just do that. Yeah, I think part of it may be that we've been doing this prosecutorial thing a certain way for a very long time, and yes. um, it's hard to make changes. Particularly when you've never measured it. Nobody, <laughs> you know, like, Imagine we, that. As lawyers... We build cases on evidence, and it's so weird to see this one group of lawyers look at all the evidence of how bad of a job that we're doing and still say we're doing it the right Let's way. Let's keep doing it like yeah. this. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We well, are a breath of fresh air. Thank you, sir. You are Thanks too. for joining us. Thanks a lot, Senator.